Hello everybody and welcome to this recording of Activist Lawyer with myself Sarah Henry in the Granite Podcast Studio here in Newry. I'm really excited to be joined by today's guest who is Dr Rachel Killing. Rachel is a senior lecturer in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast and a fellow of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice. Her research focuses on transitional justice with a particular focus on sexual and gender-based violence, cultural heritage and the environmental legacies of atrocity. She is the author of Victims, Atrocity and International Criminal Justice, Lessons from Cambodia, published by Routledge in 2018, and is co-editor of Sexual Violence and Trial, Local and Comparative Perspectives, published in 2021. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm pleased to be here. I think we've been trying to get this date in the diary for quite some time between the two of us back and forth. So it's fantastic <laughs> to have you here. And I think um, today we'll be discussing some hugely relevant issues that are ongoing. Um, but just before we get into that, Rachel, just, I mean, can you introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners and maybe tell us about your career and your journey to becoming a senior lecturer in law? Yes, uh, happy to, and thanks again for having me on. Um, so I am originally by training a Scottish lawyer. I went to uh, Dundee University to do my undergrad um, a while ago, let's say. And I was motivated at that time by a kind of naive commitment to changing the world. I probably imagined that I would end up working for the UN or, you know, the Human Rights Council or, or something like that. So. In the pursuit of that slightly vague goal, I did a public international law LLM in Leiden after my undergraduate. And um, following my introduction to international criminal law as a topic, I took an internship at the Khmer Rouge Tribunal or the ECCC in Cambodia. So that was about bringing together a desire for travel, I'm still quite young, um, and also this desire to learn more about international criminal law. So. That was quite a transformative experience for me, I have to say. Um, I was there at the time where they were considering the role of victims of the Khmer Rouge in their proceedings. So they are a hybrid model that brings in some civil law, which means victims can participate in the trial and have their own representatives, different from our system. And they were considering the appeals of several thousand victims who had wanted to participate but hadn't had the chance. So this really set off all kinds of things in my brain, thinking about the role of victims in criminal justice and what it means to participate in criminal justice processes. And when I came back to Scotland, I was uh, doing my year to qualify as a lawyer and I was I was set up to do a commercial law traineeship. Mm-hmm. And that just made me really depressed, to be honest. I was very aware that it wasn't going to be the right pathway for me. And at that time, I was lucky enough to go to a seminar by Kieran McAvoy, who ended up being my PhD supervisor. He works at Queen's here as a professor. And we got talking about victims in transitional justice and his own experiences of research and my experiences in Cambodia. And it was from that that the PhD project was born. So I used to like embarrassing Kieran by talking about how he, you know, saved me from this uh, corporate life that I was going to be quite unhappy in, um, which, you know, he pretends he's embarrassed, but I know he secretly loves it. Um, and then through my PhD, I got to dig deeper into these issues around victim participation in transitional justice and in criminal justice. 
And then by the time I finished my PhD, I, you know, really fall in love with, with Belfast. I had a nice partner. I had a house and a dog. I liked my friends. So when a job came up here, um, I applied and I've been here ever since. Fantastic. And recently you were in Cambodia, not so long ago, Rachel, um, maybe at the start of this year. And I mean, you've got such a vast array of experience and covering um, quite heavy topics as well. Um, what areas have you been particularly engaging in um, recently and what, what, is, what have you found most challenging, I guess, in terms of your research? So, I mean, you're right, I've been engaging in a lot of different issues in Cambodia. I've always been drawn back to Cambodia as a case site for research. I think there's there's value in um, growing with a place and exploring different um, research threads as you kind of learn more about the place. So yeah. the most recent project looks at how the concept of human dignity is understood in Cambodia. So mm-hmm. there's an assumption that human dignity is something universally understood, and you see that in international law and sustainable development. But there's there's plenty of indicators that that's not really the case, and actually this is something that's socially informed, culturally informed, uh, influenced by religion, language, all these kinds of things. So I've been working with the Centre for the Study of Humanitarian Law and some colleagues to, to dig into that concept. But the, the journey has gone from, you know, the original project around victims and transitional justice to thinking about the role of museums in memorialising the past, uh, how we respond to cultural heritage loss. Uh, I did a project that used film to um, advocate for environmental and indigenous rights. So it's been varied, um, but over that time, I think what's been so rewarding is building closer relationships with Cambodian academics and, and activists there. Um, trying to understand a bit more of the context and the nuances of a culture that's different from mm-hmm. my own um, in a country that is challenging and continues to teach me a lot. What, what's challenging about it is that Cambodia is not necessarily on a great pathway um, politically. Mm-hmm. The government has become increasingly authoritarian. Uh, there's a constant erosion of human rights. There's a growing gap between the rich and the poor and, and almost total destruction of their natural spaces and environment. So I've been going there for over a decade and each time I go, I think my heart breaks in a, yeah. in a new way. Um, but the counter to that is just on the theme of activism, uh, which we're talking about, is learning more and more about the diverse ways, <coughs> sorry, the diverse ways that people try and make change in Cambodia. There can be a perception that it's a passive culture uh, for outsiders. But the more you engage with what people are doing there, the more you see people really using diverse strategies and a lot of ingenuity to keep pushing for rights and improvements in their society wherever they find the space. And I find that very inspiring. Yeah, and it's interesting there what you mentioned. I, I didn't realise and I, I have no experience in, in, in the matter, but the, the, um, kind of using museums and um, history as a way to explore, you know, um, injustices uh, and to kind of memorialise that. Um, have we seen that closer to home here? I'm thinking of just the Magdalene Laundries and um, kind of institutional abuse that happened, particularly in, in the Republic of Ireland. I think there was talk there to turn some of the um, the institutions, the buildings themselves into memorials. So that's interesting that that's, is that something that you see more of these days and something that people are calling for? Yeah, so that particular project grew out of uh, work that my colleagues Cheryl Lothar and Lauren Dempster were doing in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. So they were looking at how um, 
victims are represented in conversations about the past and part of that was looking at atrocity sites that had been turned into memorials in some way. Yeah. So the Cambodian example is S21, which is a, a torture site. Okay. Um, but this is not unique to any particular jurisdiction. You'll find this wherever there's a contested past, both formal memorials, which might be the state's particular narrative about an atrocity, sure. but also less formal, you know, ones uh, created by communities. Yeah. Exactly, survivor-driven project. Uh, so, yeah, so the project that looked at Tulflang or S21 was a result of those conversations between myself and Cheryl and Lauren about, you know, these very different countries mm-hmm. and very different experiences of conflict, but this shared desire to not forget what happened and to give voice to people who may have lost their lives for their loved ones. Excellent. So interesting. Well, one of the areas of your research that we'll discuss today focuses, as we mentioned, on sexual and gender based violence, which has come up as a theme quite frequently on this uh, podcast. But, um, you know, while matters evolve, I think it's still very much important to keep this on the table. And one of your publications mentioned at the outset there explores sexual violence in the context of the criminal justice system, uh, focusing on Northern Ireland, but also drawing on experiences from other jurisdictions in the UK and Ireland, which is something we haven't specifically looked at here. So if it's possible, and I don't know whether it is or not, can you pin down your key findings and maybe comment on what the situation is here in Northern Ireland in terms of criminal justice, investigations, prosecutions, etc.? Yeah, um, I'll try. I'll A big try. question. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I want to do just, you know, it was an edited collection, so there were so many contributors. We had both academics and practitioners, so I want to try and give justice to this diversity of voice in the book. Um, so the book was a result of the, of the Gillen Review, which you may have discussed on the podcast in previous episodes, mm-hmm. and um, that needs to think about how criminal justice was responding to sexual violence in Northern Ireland in the aftermath of the rugby rape trial. So the rugby rape trial really drags into the light what academics who engage in these topics have known for a long time, which is, you know, the criminal process is a significant site of harm for complainants, um, both through cross-examination tactics, um, through uh, invasive disclosure processes, and through, in the case of the rugby rape trial, the media response to uh, these high-profile trials. So we wanted to bring together folks from this place, but also from other comparative jurisdictions to reflect on what's particular about our case study but what is more, um, not necessarily universal, but common for sure. So what's common is that criminal justice is a site of victimization for those that have experienced harm. And despite a lot of policy and legislative changes across the UK, that remains the case. And if anything, the difficulties associated with protecting the right to a fair trial and also treating a complainant with dignity has grown um, you know, we had a defence lawyer contribute a chapter where he really called out the erosion of the rights of the defence. And it's important that we don't forget that, you know, what's at stake for people accused of these crimes is serious. Um, but at the same time, the policies that he highlighted that may have eroded fair trial rights have not led to a better experience uh, for victims. So there's a fundamental problem there and a, a disparity between what we want and what the ways that we're going about it. So what's particular about Northern Ireland is obviously our our context and our history. You know, this is a place where political violence was not so long ago. It's a place that continues to be dominated by certain 
conservative Christian patriarchal framings in, in society, we have a significant lack of appropriate sexual health education uh, for our young people. We have a history of trauma, we have alcoholism, you know, this mm -hmm. is like what we have in the criminal justice system is not separate and cannot be separated from what it means to live in Northern Ireland. So that was something that came out through the book. And as a result of that, we can think about criminal justice reform, but we also have to look at broader societal reform. So part of that is education, as I mentioned, but also thinking about where our particular rape myths come from that inhibit people seeking justice and the particular challenges that our folks are facing. You know, it doesn't mean that you excuse sexual violence to think about why it might be happening. So that was one of the things that came out. And then another thread that I just want to use out is the growing challenges around digital media. So that came through in a, a few different chapters. So both in the social media commentary around the rugby Rachel was really a stark example of that, uh, but not a unique example of that. So that raises questions about the privacy of the complainant and the privacy of the accused. You know, both both were experiencing quite a lot of ritual around the child. Um, but also things like the increased use of digital evidence, so the WhatsApp conversations that were released through the child and the kind of condemnation that came around that and the crucial role that they played in the trial, but also the use of digital media and perpetrating harm through, you know, upskirting, revenge, yes. harm, these kinds of things. So we kind of, we wanted to look forward to what still needs to happen, what's, what's the Gillen Review doing, what still needs to happen, and what are the challenges that are on the horizon that we might find that law is struggling to keep up yeah. with. Yeah, so really, I mean, that's quite in-depth and you're right, I mean, the rugby rape trial brought so much to the fore that people um, like yourself and people who ordinarily practice within um, criminal justice as well would have been familiar with, um, but it really shed the light on the whole digital um, issues that arise in terms of, as you said, both for, um, you know, the, the person accused and for the victim or the survivor. Um, you mentioned there about policy and legislative change. I mean, it's clearly necessary and you've delved into you know the historical side of things in Northern Ireland and Northern Irish context but we are still the only part of the UK without you know a formal strategy on violence against women and girls. I think we're seeing some movement in, in the right direction and if I'm right um, we're still at consultation stage now. I'm not sure in terms of the executive and the lack of <laughs> lack of executive at the moment how that's going to progress but how important is that you know, how do you do you see that as being a necessary um, implementation to support your work and other work and, and you know, um, a strategy for women and girls who need it? Yeah, I do. I think it's important to acknowledge that sexual violence, domestic abuse, these gendered harms can happen to anyone, you know, regardless of their gender orientation or their sexuality. Um, so that, that's an important realisation and that's something that's not always visible. So, mm -hmm. you know, when I was uh, researching the coercive control legislation in Northern Ireland, I came across interesting research by a woman called Marion Duggan who was highlighting that there might be a kind of societal assumption that in LGBTQ relationships there might be less violence because they don't have heteronormative power dynamics. Yeah. But that's not necessarily mm. true. But those same assumptions can really hinder seeking support. So we need to think quite broadly about who is experiencing violence. But on the flip side of that, 
the majority of victims of sexual violence are women and the majority of perpetrators of sexual violence are men. And that's part of accepting that we live in a patriarchal society where uh, the ability to control women is, is assumed amongst men. This is not about particular men. It's, you know, it's not pointing fingers. It's about systems uh, of entitlement. Mm -hmm. And until we face up to that and engage with that gendered reality, we're not going to be able to address the fact that women face particular risks in the home, uh, particular risks in, risks in their personal relationships. And as we learned in the sad case of Sarah Everard, mm -hmm. Uh, from place, people that are placed in positions of authority as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, just doing some research as well, and I know I, I work closely with Women's Aid here in Uri, and I mean, the numbers are startling in terms of women who are murdered, even just in Northern Ireland and not across the island of Ireland. But looking specifically here, closer to home, it's it's quite shocking. And I mean, you've mentioned Sarah Everard there. There have been a number of high profile cases recently. I, I'm, I'm thinking of Ashleen Murphy as well in, in, in the South. And I mean... You know, there are two very high profile cases. Hashtags were born out of that. I mean, she was out for a run and it really brought the message home to everybody. Every family um, would have considered, you know, the, the horrendous attack there. But um, what about other women and those who have not, you know, been named by the press? I know there has been an effort to highlight uh, those women across Ireland recently. But how can we highlight the sheer prevalence of harassment and violence as opposed to focusing on, you know, a couple of cases to make sure that people really understand the depth of this problem? Yeah, I think that's a good question and I don't think people really realise the scale of it. I saw an article last week um, by the woman Karen, Karen Ingalette-Smith, I want to say her name right, um, who was saying we've had 125 deaths in the UK, across the UK since Sarah's death. Wow. Uh, a lot of them don't really receive any media attention and I think, you know, you, you highlighted yourself in the question there, that narrative around um, she was just out for a run. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is these you know, women that are engaging in what we perceive to be blameless behavior, and particularly if they are attractive and if they are young professionals or you know, students or, or young mothers or you know, these kinds of ideal victim characteristics, as, as um, the sociologist Nilk Christie would put it, mm -hmm. these get platforms. Uh, whereas folks that are deemed deviant either through what they do, if they're sex workers or if they're an ethnic minority or if they are old even, they really struggle to get that attention. So I think part of it is about, you know, we want to believe that if we do the right things and we make the right choices, bad things won't happen to us. So someone just going for a run and being murdered is really startling and therefore it gathers its attention because stranger danger really yeah. freaks us out, you know, because it challenges that belief that if we are smart, we will manage to avoid violence in our lives and these kind of cases shatter that. But overlooking those that struggle more to, to get attention totally obfuscates the scale of the problem and leaves those that probably most need help without that help. So returning to Ingela Smith's work, she, she works on the Counting Dead Women Project uh, and the Femicide um, Census. And I think those kinds of concepts, concepts like femicide can be useful because we need to understand these things as not isolated acts of interpersonal violence, but as part of a systemic problem. You know, women are being killed by men, mostly, uh, at a rate of about once every three days, and that is 
intimately connected to a uh, sense of entitlement that I flagged before to control, uh, to shape, and you know, most dramatically to end women's lives yeah. when they act in a way that is deemed upsetting or challenging to, to those men. You know, I always think about Margaret Atwood's quote, you know, men are afraid that women will laugh at them, women are afraid that men will kill them. Mm-hmm. Once you understand that women are living that way, that they are living in fear, and that that fear is justified, it's a legitimate response to a threat, it's not paranoia, and then you grasp the scale of this problem. Absolutely. And, I mean, that's it's so important to raise awareness I guess and I can see how people as you mentioned there you know the the blameless behaviour is something that really relates to to people and of course it gives the whole issue and the prevalence a good platform in in the press and in the media but I'm wondering as well how does the data reflect the problem we know um, as you mentioned um, the prevalence you know it goes across communities and across ethnic minorities and I know previously just in in working before you know traveller women as well experience a significant um, issues of domestic and, and sexual violence we don't really hear about it and when I was trying to and I'm not a researcher and it's not my background but you don't really hear about it even in, in terms of data or I'm wondering um, should do we need more of a focus on those specific minority groups or is there something that, that does play into that that maybe I'm just not aware of? Well, I think we need to take seriously the fact that for minority groups, the criminal justice system is not a place of support and safety. It's a place of violence, you know, and we need to take that um, on their word and uh, to listen to those experiences. You know, um, I don't want to speak for communities. I think it would be good, you know, mm-hmm. you could bring on traveller women and traveller yeah. activists to speak to this better than myself. But I do think that we need to place representatives from those communities into the spaces where conversation around policy and legislation is happening um, and to listen. So I've been thinking a lot about the hate crime legislation, the push to have gender recognised as, uh, you know, the subject of of a hate crime. Mm -hmm. But for traveller activists, I I was in a a workshop with abolitionist activists and there was a representative of the traveller community saying, you know, the introduction of hate crime means the increased policing of our communities. It's not necessarily going to stop us experiencing hate crime or women experiencing hate crime, but it is likely to increase state violence. Um, And that has been our experience when we turn to the police and when we turn to criminal justice to solve our problems. So I think we need to take those fears seriously. If it's not captured in the data, it's because they're not reporting. If they're not reporting, it's because they don't trust the police. And that's valid. That's valid, yeah. Oh my goodness, there's so much more work to be done, isn't there? But um, just as well, Rachel, I guess, I mean, it's so brilliant in this podcast to have such a variety of guests and people who are, um, you know, practicing law and then yourself, the information that you're gathering there, your research is so important and plays so much of a role in terms of the progression of, you know, legislation and policy that we need here. Um, what's coming up, do you think, in terms of, I, I don't know your specific research, but are there anything, any issues there that you feel, you know, it's it's urgent and that we need um, more action on in, in Northern Ireland, let's say, for example, around this? What more can we do? Because I know we had a little spate of good news stories there for a while with um, certain pieces of legislation being pushed through. But is there anything that you could highlight that, you know, we really are falling behind on and we need something done urgently? Yeah, you're right. It was a, a bit of an exciting time for a few weeks there. And, you know, I want to really shout out Claire Bailey and uh, Rachel, Rachel Woods and, yeah. you know, these politicians that are just 
really trying to get things done to make life a bit safer and um, better for women on the island and also to stop us completely fucking up the climate. It's mm-hmm. you know, good to see. Um, I suppose I would return to the digital age dilemmas um, because I think this is really an area where law is falling quite quickly behind mm-hmm. practice. So I, you know, my two co-editors on the edited collection, Esna uh, Dowds and Anne-Marie McAlinden, and I, we've continued to build on this because we felt like this was quite um, an interesting area that's not really a, a live conversation in Northern Ireland as such. Mm-hmm. And what we saw was that these ideas around ideal victimhood that we were discussing earlier get even more amplified when you turn to the digital world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, young women that are, or young men that are coerced into sharing news that are then shared with other people. This has all these kinds of implications for um, the victim becoming a perpetrator, for example, if they're underage, but also bystanders becoming culpable through sending on messages and what that means for our understandings of criminal perpetration and victimhood. So I think that's one of the areas where our thinking is, is not particularly nuanced yet around who is a victim and what kind of criminal justice response is needed there. What we don't want is to over-criminalise young people for engaging in you know, sexual expression mm-hmm. uh, in a consensual way, and that can be a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. You know, uh, you definitely don't want 15-year-olds ending up on a sex offenders register sure. because they were sharing a picture, ill-advisedly potentially, but sharing a picture with their loved one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do we capture that and how do we protect, again, the dignity of people to engage in free sexual expression but also not be victimised and have their privacy invaded in these harmful ways? So I think that's really urgent. All our young folks have phones. We know this. You know, ever younger people have phones and are encountering um, pornography and engaging in experimentation and we want to make sure people can do that in a safe way and a non-coercive way. Brilliant. Uh, so yeah, we need to think about that. <laughs> really, really important. Well, Rachel, finally, just I guess there's there's so much there to digest, but just in terms of, I mean, this podcast is all about activism and, and using the law. What does it I mean to you in terms of you know being an activist I think that's fair enough to describe you as that and more specifically how can we use the law to make change and affect change? So in relation to the first part I guess I mean I suppose activism is any kind of pursuit of societal change whatever that means to you in the space that you have access to. Um, because I am so in awe of the feminist activism that happens in this place I would struggle to claim that label for myself because I don't want to take away from the real on the street in the executive work that goes on. But I suppose being an activist academic means thinking about how you can at least gear your research towards some positive change and trying to be in conversation with those that have a more direct role to play. I was lucky enough to meet um, Northern Irish judges recently to talk about coercive control and to... um, provide a bit more of a kind of critical perspective. And that was really a really fruitful conversation. You know, sometimes I think in my imaginary judges are these really conservative, like old men, like exclusively. Uh, But it was a much more interesting, uh, nuanced conversation. So like that was beneficial for all of us. I think I learned some lessons too. Um, So I think it's about thinking through your research, what is this about? What kind of changes do I want to see? And then who might learn useful things from from the time that I have to research so you know I would get really excited when I learn that a feminist activist is reading the edited collection or if it's made its way to a victim support organization like that that really means a lot 
but I don't want to overemphasize the power of academics to make change if you don't engage in more direct activism sure. as well. I think on on the second question, I was glad you asked this actually because we've been thinking a lot about this lately. Uh, again, Esna and I, we ran a series of workshops around feminist lawmaking. It started off as feminist legislation drafting and then broadened out as we realized that feminist lawmaking is so much more than that. Um, and what came through was the, the tension, you know, so the criminal justice system is a site of harm, like we know that, and if you accept that, as I increasingly do, you have to ask yourself, is it my role as a feminist academic to legitimize this site of harm, or is it to challenge it? But equally, this is the system that we have, it exists right now, it's happening around us, so maybe we should just be trying to make sure that it's as not shit as possible, yeah. so my own work. I guess it's a bit of a cop-out because on the one hand, I do like to look beyond criminal justice to think about other ways to address harm. But at the same time, I have been vocal about the need for um, legal representatives for complainants, for example, or greater voice for victims or reparations, you know. So I try and do both. I kind of refer to it as like a dance with the devil, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you're just trying to make life a little yeah. better where you can. Absolutely. Well, that is absolutely so insightful, Rachel. We could we could talk all day. I'm so interested there, especially in respect of the feminist lawmaking, and I'll be interested to see how you know that develops and um, more of your research as well. And I want to really just thank you for taking the time today to speak to us. And no we really look forward to catching up on, on all of your work, and I'm sure there's there's lots of information in there for our listeners. And um, yeah, so thanks so much. Uh, it was my pleasure and I'm happy to share any of the publications or links or anything for your listeners so they can follow thank, up. Thank you, Rachel. We will we will do that as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> talk soon. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.